I want to be up front with you this morning, kind of like full disclosure. This week's sermon prep was weird. Like, was really, really weird. For starters, beginning last Sunday night around the Super Bowl halftime show through late Tuesday night, about the closing of the New Hampshire primary, uh, I was in bed sick as a dog. Um, It felt like the flu, might have been a cold. Truthfully, it could have been the unhealthy mixture of Coldplay, Bruno Mars, and Beyonce that did me in. You know, three acts that are great, independent of each other, but honestly, no one has Uptown Funk being played after Paradise and their playlist. Just, it was just an unhealthy mixture. I think that might have made me ill. Either way, what also made this week kind of strange in regards to the sermon prep was that heading into my prep, I had every intention of very quickly running through verses 10 through 15 of Galatians 5 so that we could dive like really head in deep into what is really kind of the crescendo of this letter to the Galatians, and that's verse 16. That wasn't God's plan, though, because as I was chewing through the text, it became clear that as I was unpacking verses 10 through 15, I couldn't just skim through them. Once again, that's no big deal, typically, other than the fact that by the time I reached that revelation, I had spent two full days studying verse 16, which won't be part of this morning's study at all. Like I said, it was just a weird, weird week of prep. Beyond that, the direction this morning's study ended up taking took kind of like this weird right turn in the middle of everything that was very unexpected. Yes, today, Sunday, February 14th, I totally tripped up and fell rather unwillingly into a Valentine's Day message, which makes me want to gag. Um, I absolutely hate Valentine's Day. I think it's the worst of all of the holidays. If, if, if I had announced, like through Twitter, hey, really excited, Valentine's Day message, I wouldn't have come to church. <laughs> which is why we didn't announce that. We kind of trapped you into it. So it was a weird week. You're just going to have to kind of roll with me here. The year was 496 A.D. The Pope had a problem. Though Christianity was the religion of the empire, certain pagan holidays were still being practiced and celebrated. One such holiday occurred mid-February and was known as Lupercalia. This was a festival dedicated to Faunus, the Roman god of agriculture, and one that commemorated the caring of Romulus and Remus, who were the founders of Rome, if you don't know that, by the she-wolf, Lupa. In an elaborate ceremony, this procedure, on this day, a goat would be sacrificed. Then it would be cut into stripes, strips of hide. These pieces would be soaked in blood. And then they would take these strips of goat-soaked hide, and they would go through town and gently, I don't know how you do this gently, but they would do this, slap single ladies 
and crops. Like the whole purpose was fertility. So you wanted the, the, co- the crops to yield a harvest, so you'd slap it with some goat blood. And if there was some ladies, you know, that, some single ladies uh, that needed a man, needed a baby and all that, they'd slap them as well with the blood goat strip hide stuff. And, and then that was supposed to be like some cool thing. So that's Lupercalia, this holiday, middle of February. The Pope had a problem, right? I mean, what was he to do? Because as strange and bizarre, you know, as this holiday was, the people loved it. The people enjoyed it. Something that they were kind of dedicated to while, on the flip side, the pagan elements to it were obvious. His answer was to do what, well, the Roman Catholic Church typically do. Christianize a pagan holiday for no reason at all. So, beginning in 496, the middle of February, specifically the 14th day, was to be ever known as St. Valentine's Day. Now, here's the irony of that. Though St. Valentine had already been commemorated by the church, no one knew why. Like, seriously. Like, he was a saint, but no one knew what he'd done to justify sainthood. It was kind of a mystery. As a matter of fact, the Pope at the time is actually on record as stating concerning Valentine that while, quote, his name is justly revered among men, tragically, his, quote, actions are known only to God. Interestingly enough, what the mystery surrounding the life of St. Valentine allowed was the development of all sorts of legends. Let me share with you two of the most accepted of these legends. One of them contends that St. Valentine was a priest who served during the third century when Claudius II, an evil empire, outlawed marriage for young men, deciding that single men were better for the army than men who were married with wives and families. Valentine, he saw this as a grave injustice. So he defied Claudius's orders and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. As the legend goes, Claudius caught word, had Valentine arrested, and this saint was put to death. Another one of the legends states that Valentine was a priest who helped young Christians escape from harsh Roman prisons, where Christians during this time period were typically tortured and beaten. According to the legend, after being imprisoned himself, Valentine fell in love with the daughter of the prison master. And he would proceed to express his love by sending her letters. They were known as Valentines. And before his death, it's alleged that he wrote a letter signed, quote, from your Valentine. Hence why we have the sappiness of all this. Though likely these stories are nothing more than fables, it is true that around this time and continuing onward, Valentine's Day quickly came to represent love and was seen 
as a day of romance. <laughs> Why, well, I always thought this stupid holiday was the creation of Hallmark, Pajamagrams, Build-A-Bear, 1-800-Flowers, or the Restaurant Association of America. We have instead the Roman Catholic Church to thank for Valentine's Day. I'm bitter, I know, sorry. All that to lead to a question here on Valentine's Day. What is love? Like, what is it? Is love a magical force, mystical force, that brings together two people destined to be one? Is it a magical thing that, you know, brought together Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan and Sleepless in Seattle? And You Got Mail and the classic Joe versus the Volcano. Is it a magical thing that exists between Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan? Or is love something deeper than that? Something more tangible? You know, like the love the slow-witted Forrest Gump always demonstrated to the unstable and destructive Jenna. <laughs> who I had totally forgotten is played by Robin Wright Penn, which is awesome, actually. The truth, when it comes to that question of what is love, is that it's two very different but interrelated things that while we struggle to define Ironically, we all articulate with two very common cultural phrases. Two phrases are, oh, I'm in love, or I love you. On one side of the coin, this phrase, in love, it serves to describe a very real, chemically induced, physical experience when a personal connection triggers a release of a cocktail of adrenaline, dopamine, and serotonin into the limbic system of your brain, which is where you process feelings. For example, when I say I'm in love with Jessica, what I'm saying, what I'm indicating with that statement is the fact that Jessica, this person, triggers in my head a very real, tangible experience, chemical reactions of feelings and emotions. That said, when love exists as purely an act of biology, when it's only just these chemicals, love is rather unsustainable. The reason this is the case is that this euphoric feeling within the brain can't last forever without the brain becoming numb to the increased levels of these chemicals, adrenaline and dopamine and serotonin. As a matter of fact, while it's hard to place the exact time frame, approximately eight months after eight months of feeling these type of euphoric emotions towards another person, the brain will naturally begin to restrict the release of these chemicals. Naturally, it's why all high school relationships end at about eight months. 
because you're driving this euphoric feeling, and then at eight months, the brain's like, nope, we're done, and you're like, <laughs> I'm done with that person. Like, I don't love them anymore. Like, seriously. It explains why in what I'd like to refer to as the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan alternate universe of romantic comedies, these two characters are destined to always have to get back together in every movie they're in because between movies, they break up. You see, the natural laws of love and the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan alternate universe of romantic comedies demands that they're trapped in a Groundhog's Day of B-movies. See what I did there? See that? See that? <laughs> you see, whoever it is that triggers these reactions in your brain, whoever that person is, they can't. It's impossible. They can't indefinitely trigger those chemical reactions. It's an impossibility. It's, it's why people who break up or get divorced typically say something like this. I'm no longer in love with my spouse. I'm no longer, I'm no longer feeling it. Yeah, you're not. That's true. It's because your brain can't handle it all the time. You can't run wide open. You're not built that way. What these people are in actuality saying is that since the person they're with is no longer providing a feeling they need, they need to now go out and find someone else who can. It's, it's the reason that people cheat, which sadly explains why cheaters are rarely one-time offenders and why second marriages end in divorce an astounding 75% of the time. You see, if love is nothing more than a feeling, if it's nothing more than a chemically induced biological pleasure in your brain, monogamy is an impossibility. And yet, while love is an emotion. On the other side of this coin, this phrase, I love you, it describes something deeper, bigger, larger. It describes not a feeling, though it can no doubt be manifested by one, but, in but instead it describes an activity based upon a free-willed decision. I mean, think about it. I, me, I love, it's a verb. You, I'm making a decision, rather independent of you, to love you. I love you. It's not describing a feeling or an emotion, but a decision. In context, it's a verb. It's active. If something I'm choosing to demonstrate towards another person, relatively independent of that person. And this is why, in this sense, love as an act of the will and, and not a feeling, it's why it becomes deeper and more lasting because it's rooted in something, well, bigger, the will. Like for example, like no one could ever question Forrest's love for Jenny. Like that dude, I mean, he loved that gal and she was a jerk to him like all the time. Like, what did poor Forrest do to deserve it? And yet, 
Forrest made a decision. I love you. It was independent of her. It was independent of her actions. It was independent of what she did to him. He made a decision, no matter what, he loved Jenny. He actively demonstrated it every chance he had, didn't he? This morning, I want to put all my cards on the table and say something that might be hard to hear. If your love for your spouse is nothing more than a chemical reaction in your brain, if it's simply biology, then you will act like an animal or a drug addict, and it will be impossible for your relationship to sustain the test of time. That said, if, in understanding that lasting love is an activity of your will that transcends how you feel, you are this morning actively trying to love your spouse. Like, you get it. But you're trying to love actively your spouse in your own strength, meaning it's also a simple process of biology then you're going to find it impossible and frustrating and counterintuitive. Like, understand, and this sets up a concept we're going to dig into this morning. The only way you can love others, love it all, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or your neighbor, the only way you can love is for it not to simply be biology, but instead be a manifestation of God's amazing grace. Let's get to our text. Paul opens Galatians 5 with the command to stand firm in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, knowing that it doesn't take much to, quote, entangle us again with a yoke of bondage. Paul says a little leaven is all that's needed to leaven the whole lump. His, his point is that a little corruption in our thinking and in in the way we view things, it has the ability to corrupt everything, to corrode every part of our lives. Which then explains why Paul asks these Galatians, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Note, Paul asks who. Notice, Paul affirms the fact that legalism, while not only being detrimental to my own spiritual life and ability to be obedient before God. Legalism does not grow naturally in the life that's been set free by Jesus. Who introduced this? Who hindered you? Paul says in verse eight, this persuasion does not come from him, Jesus, who called you. Please keep in mind, legalism, as a foreign weed unnatural to the Christian life, legalism, it has to be introduced to our ecosystem for it to exist at all. It's foreign. Like in a sense, Paul emphasizes this fact in order to now explain how it is we're to stand firm in the liberty. How do we stand firm? Man, we're very, very careful who we allowed to sow into our lives, who we allow to teach us the things of God. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, if you remove grace out of the gospel, the gospel is gone. Be careful that you're allowing yourself to be under the teaching of the gospel and not the law. Paul continues, verse 10, 
Galatians 5. I have confidence in you (laughs) and the Lord that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you, this person hindering, shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? (laughs) Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Well, tell us how you really feel, Paul, right? Like it would seem from the context that Paul is addressing another one of these fallacious rumors that had been circulated by these false teachers who had come to Galatia peddling a gospel distortion that Paul had been preaching circumcision. They do this to add some credibility to what they were communicating. (laughs) To his defense, Paul simply points to his suffering at the hands of the Jews as being evidence to the contrary. This statement, then the, the offense of the cross has ceased, affirms the true reason that Paul suffered persecution. This word offense in the Greek, scandalon, from which we get our English word scandal. This word literally refers to an impediment in the way that causes one to stumble. It can describe and be descriptive of the the movable stick that triggers a trap. Why is the cross such a deal breaker? The cross, it's a deal breaker because it tells the world there is a righteous God who will judge humanity for sin. It's offensive because I can't escape the reality that if God would judge Jesus, I can't escape from that. That there'll come a day I will stand before God and be held to account for how I live the life that he gave me. The cross, it's a deal breaker because it reminds the world that no amount of self-sacrifice could ever justify You see, the cross, it illustrates that salvation is a God-go-at-it-alone proposition. That there's nothing I could do. That there's nothing you could do. That the remedy for this problem of sin was only something that God could do. That God could accomplish. It's why Jesus from the cross stated to telestai, it is finished. I have no involvement. I have no role. I contribute nothing. Concerning the powerful nature of Calvary, A.W. Tozer, he observes, quote, The cross stands high above the opinions of men, and to that cross all opinions must come at last for judgment. As Paul closes this particular section, he can't move on without relaying a few thoughts, a few feelings, to whomever it was that had come to Galatia peddling this gospel distortion to the churches Paul loved and had started. Not only does he warn right up front, saying that this person, whoever he is, shall be judged, shall bear his judgment, but Paul makes it known that he wishes for this person, for those who troubled the Galatians, that they would even cut themselves off. And yes, Paul is saying what you think he's saying. 
think it's safe to assume by telling these men to cut themselves off, Paul is making it clear that he didn't want them to be fruitful. He didn't want them to be multiplying. He didn't want them to be spreading the seed of this false gospel. But I also think Paul is making a profound point by taking their theology out to its logical extreme in order to show how inconsistent it was. Since circumcision was one of these legalistic works, these false teachers were requiring of these Gentile believers, Paul's kind of like sarcastically saying, listen, fellas, if God is pleased with circumcision, then why not really show how devoted to God you are? I mean, just don't start with the foreskin. I mean, cut that baby all the way off. God will be pleased. That's Paul's words, not mine. Verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you become consumed by one another. For the last two chapters, Paul has been contrasting grace and law. Hagar and Sarah, Isaac and Ishmael, the bondwoman, the free woman, freedom, slavery. And his intention is to hammer home the practical results of each of these two diametrically opposed approaches to God. Now, in the hopes of nailing down this point once and for all, Paul points to the greatest difference between the approach of receiving God's favor, grace, or yearning to earn God's favor, law. And what is the greatest difference? The greatest difference to these two approaches is how these approaches yield the way I now treat others. How these approaches affect the way I treat my fellow men. Notice, Paul says, quote, for the law is fulfilled in one word. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19, verse 18. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's interesting about Paul, Paul's statement here, this particular reference, is what's already assumed. What Paul is already assuming from his audience is that you first, quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. When the Pharisees came to Jesus and they're like, what's the greatest law? <clears throat> Jesus said, easy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. See, Paul referencing loving your neighbor as yourself assumes you're already loving God, that that already exists. The operative word here is fulfilled. For the law is fulfilled in one word, which means literally to render full or to carry into effect. The law is carried into effect in this command. So you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's carried into effect. That's seen how? By loving your neighbor as yourself. What Paul is saying is that a right relationship with God will immediately and naturally impact the way you treat your fellow man, in a sense. Paul is presenting 
the way we treat one another as a litmus test for whether or not we're right with God. It's brilliant reasoning, honestly. Like the irony of legalism and the reason we know that it fails to make us right with God is that legalism doesn't breed love. Ever been to a legalistic church? It's like the most unloving place you could possibly be, isn't it? You see, what legalism does fundamentally in the way that we approach God is that it sets us against one another because our status, our favor with God is merit-based. What I'm doing to demonstrate to God how much I love him, how much I care about him, how thankful I am, because it's based in me and what I do, earning something, it's then only natural we do what? And I think we can all sympathize with this because we've all slipped into the law before and we all have seen this result. When I'm earning God's favor, when I'm earning to maintain God's favor, when it's about me reaching to God, what naturally happens is that I begrudge those who are doing better than me. Like I look at people like who, at least on the surface, I mean, they got it together. Like it looks like like perfect dad, perfect husband. Like I'm trying to earn and do this and I'm looking over at the guy who seems to have done it and it's not like I'm inspired. I hate you. Because I'm trying real hard and you don't seem to be trying very hard but you're succeeding where I'm failing. I just want to punch you in the face. Seriously, that's how I feel. When I'm, like I begrudge people who are doing better than me because it's based in merit. On the flip side to that, what else do I do naturally? Well, I might want to punch the guy in the face who's doing better than me. I look at the people in my life that aren't doing as well as I am, <laughs> and I actually find a little bit of twisted warp joy in that. That dude's doing great, better than me. I want to kick him in the shin, trip him up. But, damn, but I can't feel that bad because... Buddy over there, man, he's trying. Woo! He's falling a little further than me, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is what legalism naturally does. Anytime a church community is in disarray, it's a strong indicator legalism has taken root. Hey, get your eyes off of one another and get your eyes to Jesus. Because at that point, you can't begrudge anyone. I might feel like I'm doing better than him or, or a little worse than him, but compared to him, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I have no ability to have pride or to judge. Because compared to that, I deserve hell and judgment torment. It's why Paul says, look at it. He says, if you bite and devour one another, literally in the Greek, it, it means since you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Paul seems to be pointing to something that was happening in these Galatian churches. The fostering of unlove the fact that, that legalism in these churches had created an environment 
that meant something had gone awry. It's like Paul saying, look around you, man. Is this the gospel? Seriously, where's the love? You're biting one another. You're devouring one another. You're comparing with each other. There's no love here. And where there's no love, there's no gospel. And there's no grace. Is this what Jesus died for you to to enjoy? Killing each other? No, not at all. You see, in contrast to this toxic environment <coughs> produced by legalism, Paul says, look, for you, I can, man, I can feel like the strength in that, the passion in that. For you, the pleading, you've been called to liberty. Like you're right with God because of his grace and his grace alone, which means it's then only natural that as a byproduct of grace, that through love, you don't bite and devour each other, but you serve one another. It's like Paul saying, brethren, this is not the community that grace produces. Open your eyes. Note, the power of grace (coughs) is not only experienced in the way it transforms my view of self. When Jesus is on the cross and that's where my eyes are, grace and grace alone, it changes the way I see me, right? But what else does it do? Grace is made evident and the way it changes my heart towards the way I see others. I don't see myself the same when I see Jesus, nor do I see anyone else. It changes everything. Like this explains Paul's exhortation, quote, not to use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. The word opportunity in the Greek, it means a place from which a movement or an attack is made. Literally, think of it as like a base of operations. Do not use your liberty as a base of operations for your flesh. Paul's point is that since my liberty is completely 100% Christ-centric, it will then refuse to be me-centered, but instead be others-focused. I'll say that again, it's important. Since my liberty is Christ-centric, it will then refuse to be me-centered by instead being others-focused. If you're not others-focused and instead you're me-centered, you're not seeing Jesus for who he is. If you're not others-focused and you're me-centered, the remedy to that is to get your eyes back on Jesus. Consider, friend, Jesus, the freest person to have ever lived, right? No bondage of sin. Jesus was free, had liberty. But what in that liberty did he accomplish? Two things. Jesus's life was never about him, was it? It was about serving God and doing what? Serving man. Even to the point that he would die on the cross for that aim. Friend, that's love. Now, before we look at how grace influences love specifically, it being Valentine's Day and all, it's important you first understand a larger concept, and it's the concept of reciprocation. As we've noted, grace is a powerful thing, for it does in the life of a person what the law was unable to accomplish. Grace changes a person's behaviors. Why? Because it transforms that person's motivations. Understand. The tangible power of grace exists 
And the simple reality that everything in the Christian life is designed to be a reciprocation of a work of God. Not my works, but a work of God. Meaning, the power for the Christian life now doesn't rest in me, but in a work of Christ. Everything is a reciprocation of that. Though the law demanded I live life, a life of obedience to God. (laughs) Can you relate at how often we find ourselves under that dynamic, frustrated? Inadequate? That under the law, we find ourselves unable? And why is this the case? Here's the answer. I fail under the law because I'm left to my own strength because my motivations are based in my merit, law, and not God's work, grace. Like, think about it like this. The quickest test as to whether or not you're operating in the power of God's amazing grace is to ask this question. Ask yourself, why am I doing fill in the blank? Like, why? Like the answer to this question reveals motivations. It highlights the source of your strength and will therefore determine whether or not the activity you're engaging in is ultimately sustainable. I'll give you some examples. Why do I serve God? Why do I serve God? Is it score points? Get some points in heaven? Store some of them treasures? No. I serve God, why? Because he served me. So why wouldn't I serve others? Like, why do I teach Sunday school? Man, because God's been teaching me so much, I wanna teach others. It flows from God through me to someone else. I worship or exalt God, why? (laughs) Because He exalted me by making me an heir and a son. I lay down my life and die to self. Why? (laughs) Because Jesus first laid down his life and died for me. It's a reciprocation of what Jesus has already done. I forgive others, even if that person doesn't deserve it. Why? because he forgave me when I didn't deserve it. I'm generous to the people around me. Why? Why am I to be generous? I'm to be generous out of the understanding that Jesus has been so generous and the fact that he's given me everything I have. None of this is mine. And it's under that awareness that I give back. Not because I have to, because why wouldn't I? I demonstrate mercy to those who deserve my wrath. Why? Because God demonstrated mercy towards me when I deserve nothing but his righteous indignation. I I care for the downtrodden. Why? Because when I was at my lowest, Christ stood by my side. Why should I be patient? Why should you be patient with your kids? Because as a child of God, man, he's pretty gracious and patient with you. Do you deserve it? No. But he is anyway. 
grace. Why should I be faithful? Because God is faithful. Why should I prefer the needs of others above my own? Because God prefers your needs above his. Why should I be a witness in the world? Because when you were in darkness, Christ was a witness to you. You You see the point here? It all starts in a work that God does in my heart, which then yields a result out of my life. It's reciprocation. Christ acts, I respond. Keep in mind, if the why behind any spiritual activity finds its motivation as being anything other than a reciprocation of God's work in your life brought forth by his grace, it becomes evident that that activity, whatever it is, is being driven, not by grace, but by a gospel distortion rooted in law, leading to bondage, which will only hinder your spiritual experience and result in frustration and failure. You know, the law, legalism, it tries to motivate us. It tries to answer that question, why? In all types of subtle ways that on the surface we think that makes sense, but aren't true. Like, for example, seeking to please God. You already do. That's fundamental to grace. Like, you can't add, you can't do anything to make God love you more than he already does. Nor can you do anything to take some of that love away. His love is unconditional. It's infinite. You have it. Seeking to please God is not a healthy motivation. Because I already have it. Nor is demonstrating my devotion to God. Showing that I'm worth it. You're not worth it. No amount of you showing it's going to change that. Being holy before God. The only reason you're holy before God is because Jesus lives in you. It has nothing to do with you. You can try to do it even more. doesn't matter. You're righteous because when God sees you, he doesn't see you. That's a good thing. Instead, he sees Jesus and his righteousness, which is allocated to your account being holy before God. This can't be holy. Jesus, in this, righteous. Earning points with God. Paul says you've been given all the blessings in the spiritual places. Like you got all the points you need. Why? Because you're a son and an heir. You can't add to that. Friend, let me repeat it. When your motivation for righteous living becomes anything other than a reciprocation of a work of God, your spiritual life will be stifled because you're being robbed of the essential power for righteous living. Since the entire Christian life is built upon reciprocation, it's therefore only logical that the power for righteous living is found in Christ's work on the cross and not yours. You see how it fits together? You see, when I'm struggling, when you're struggling to do any of the things I mentioned, living the Christian life, the remedy, the remedy is not to find some deeper power, some greater motivation within yourself. The answer is not knuckling down, manning up, or developing greater discipline. Those are all lies of legalism. Rather, the remedy and failure is to return again to God's amazing grace, the cross of Jesus, the source of all spiritual power. 
It's to place yourself in the context of something that changes my motivation. Like this is why. Things like studying the Bible, prayer, worship, attending church are vital to the Christian experience. Here's why. Each of these things present a mechanism by which your life can be supernaturally influenced by God in order to affect or manifest a reciprocating godly action. Why is it important to study God's word? Why do you read God's word? Why? Simple. Because a greater knowledge of God leads to greater faith in and love for God, which then naturally results in a life that is now more in tune with and dependent upon God. Like we go through God's word with the desire for what? Knowledge? No. Transformation. We go through God's word hoping and praying that God's word will go through me and result in a reciprocating effect. Change. Godliness. God's word changes you. It allows you to be affected by God. D.L. Moody, he said the scriptures are not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Why do you pray? To tell God what's happening? Like he doesn't know he's God. Like, God, I, 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 um, I really messed up yesterday, and I'm not really sure if you're aware. Um, I, I just got to tell you this. And God's up in heaven looking at Jesus and the Holy Spirit like, where were we? <laughs> Did you not know? Were you unaware? We dropped the ball. We've just been informed of something we missed. No. <laughs> like God, like you don't pray to tell God what's happening in your life. Or to instruct God as to the best way he should be acting as God. Like God, I don't know if you're aware of all these things happening. Like you, you don't seem to be doing anything. I know I'm, I'm just like a really small, stupid creature. But I do think you're not really acting like God today. Because you'd fix this. Like right now. Immediately. Why are you not? Like we, 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 like we don't pray to let God know what's happening or tell God how to be God or to like provide him unsolicited counsel. Have you really thought about doing it this way, Jesus? No. Like why do you pray? You pray to spend time with God. For what purpose? Not to kick down the door of, of heaven to get your will done there. No, you, you spend time with God so that God's will and your heart become aligned. It's about God's will being accomplished on earth. I spend time in prayer because I need to be I need my heart affected by God. I need his eyes to see the situation. I need his eyes for wisdom. I don't need me anymore. I need more of him. So I'm on my knees, not because I have to, but because I want to connect with him, knowing when I connect with him, it produces a change in me. It's why I spend time in prayer. Friend, if you're actively trying to love people in your own strength, if it's simply biology, then you're going to find this process impossible and frustrating and counterintuitive. Why? Because you're robbing yourself of the only power by which you can truly love anyone. A reciprocating of God's grace as demonstrated in God's love. I hope you know. Your entire spiritual existence begins 
and a very simple and yet singular reality that, quote, God first loved you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You weren't even worthy of it. God first loved you, which then enables you to what? To love him as a response, as a reciprocation. I love God because God first loved me and sent his son to the cross. And yet this reciprocal work doesn't stop there. We're to love others as a reciprocation of God's love as well. I love God, why? Because he first loved me. I can love my enemies. No, I can't. Yeah, you can. How? With the reality that while you were an enemy, God loved you. I love my spouse. Why? Never forget, the answer to that question of why reveals motivation. It highlights the source of your strength, and it will, and it will determine if that love is capable of lasting. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus told his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And when you connect to Jesus, and when you allow his love for you to motivate your love for others, if you allow God's love to flow through you to those around you, what will that love look like, friend? It won't look like you. It'll look like Jesus. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. That's a love that's selfless. It's a love that's long-suffering. It's a love that's patient and it's kind. It's a love that you look at and you're like, can't do it. You're right. Totally can't. But you're not being asked to. You're being asked to allow God's love to work through you to those around you. 